Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce, The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind. But I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series, and the follow-on to that will be out in the spring, and that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com. And that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. Well, today, Karen and I are delighted to welcome Rory Innes to the podcast. Rory is the founder and CEO of the Cyber Helpline, which is a free confidential helpline for individuals who've been a victim of cybercrime. So they help victims contain, recover and learn from cyber attacks by linking them up with cybersecurity experts, which, of course, could be relevant if you're divorcing a narcissist who get up to all manner of things as a result of their narcissistic injury, including cyber stalking, revenge porn and hacking accounts. So I think this is going to be a really interesting discussion. So, Rory, thank you so much for joining us. Rory, thank you so much. I find what you do absolutely fascinating. And um, I think those listening in will do so also. Something I'd like to go back to, um, Rory, something you said at the end of the last episode. So you made the point that if you're being cyber stalked, so say if if you know that your ex-partner is looking at your emails, for example, you said it may not always be the best reaction to immediately block access because it will hamper collecting the evidence, but also because it might lead to an escalation of the stalking in other ways, um, such as turning up physically. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, Has that been shown to happen a lot? Yeah, it has. And it it obviously is situation dependent and it's also dependent on the type of stalker. But if you think about the definition of stalking, it is a pattern of fixated and obsessive behaviour. So this individual, the stalker in this instance, is absolutely obsessed with the person that they are stalking. And they they have this pattern of behaviour which is repeated, it's persistent, it's intrusive. And it causes fear of violence or alarm and distress in the victim. And so they will be looking for every opportunity to stalk that person, to communicate with that person, to watch that person. Now, their their motivations may be different. It may be revenge. They may be trying to get their relationship back. You know, it may be a range of different motivations. Often, when you remove that access, they 
that obsession doesn't go away just because they don't have access to your email account anymore. They will look for other ways to get that information and to have that access and to feel close to the victim. And the danger is that as they're looking for another way to get that information, it becomes more dangerous. Or if you move a stalker into a point where they almost get into kind of finality thinking. So, you know, this person's removing access. I'm losing my grip on this person. You can escalate much more dangerous physical behaviors if the stalker feels like they're running out of time and their opportunity is passing. And so I I would really heavily recommend that if you are being cyber stalked or harassed online by an ex-partner, that you get help, not just from a stalking charity, but an organization like us who can look at what is the risk from this stalker and this individual And what is the safety plan? And how do we make decisions about removing access at the right time that keeps you and your family safe, essentially? And there, you know, there's a case, Molly McLaren, who was killed by her stalker, where everyday things that she did, which she was quite right to do, like change her relationship status, had an impact on him in terms of that finality thinking as in I'm losing my grip here I'm losing my time and the stalking sped up incredibly quickly which led to her death and so sometimes even these small things even if you're giving that individual that kind of you know this has happened it's some sort of interaction with us if it escalates that stalking behavior or makes the stalker feel like they're running out of time then there's a chance that your risk is going to increase and so really having the most important part of all of these cases is understanding the risk and understanding how to keep the individual safe and then looking at timing of what you do and when. So, you know, you said that if they suspect that they're being stalked, perhaps by email or, you know, by some other method, that they should not necessarily shut that down, but keep it going. One, so that it doesn't escalate the behaviour of the, the stalker, but two, so that you can collate evidence which you can then present to the police how do they communicate then whilst this process of kind of evidence um gathering is going on but they've still got their accounts up and running because you're collating evidence and how are they secure in that time that might be as simple as we want you to open up a new email account we'll secure it and we want you to you know, use a trusted device which we can help secure it may be that you know we have a partnership with an organization um, who can also provide a kind of secure app for phone calls and, and email communication they can download and use. It may also be going to someone else's house and using a different device. And that's one of the challenges of the pandemic, actually, is that what a lot of our stalking victims used to do is go to the library and use a computer there, go to a friend's house or a neighbor's house. That's just not been possible as much recently. So, you definitely want to look at that secure communication channel. It might be just a cheap non-smartphone from a supermarket, whatever it is that enables that initial dialogue. But being really conscious that all of their other accounts and devices might be compromised. And so being cognizant of what's been shared on there already and making sure that they're not sharing additional sensitive information on those accounts is really important too. Goodness. I I guess there's also a flip side to this, the smear campaign against the partner who had the audacity to bring the relationship to an end might then make 
allegations or accusations of of that person still perhaps harboring some kind of ongoing feelings and suggest that they are the stalker when actually they're not. Yeah, we do see that. And that is a known stalker behaviour type. And so there's different types of stalker profile that we talk about, like um, resentful stalker, intimacy seeker. And in some of those scenarios, particularly the kind of rejected stalker in the um, kind of revenge-seeking stalkers, they will often make themselves look like the victim. We have five typical types. First of all, the kind of resentful stalker. So they are out to kind of frighten and distress the victim really for revenge. And that might be actual thing that's happened or you know something that hasn't happened but they perceive um, has happened. And they are just taking revenge. They're not trying to get into a relationship. This is just about revenge solely. Um, you have the intimacy seeker. So they are trying to get into a relationship with the individual. And usually they are convinced they actually are in a relationship or they're going to be in a relationship with that individual. And they just can't let go of that individual. So their whole MO is trying to get into that relationship. You have the rejected stalker um, who typically commences the stalking after the breakdown of a relationship. You know, Usually that is an ex-intimate partner, but not always. And that stalking really is about reconciliation, usually. It starts off with trying to get back into the relationship, but often moves into a kind of revenge driven kind of motivation if that doesn't come about and it can kind of fluctuate between the both we have what we call an incompetent suitor and they are also trying to establish a relationship with the individual but kind of different from the intimacy seeker they're usually just trying to get a date or a sexual encounter it's something much more kind of fleeting um and then we have the last type which is the predatory predatory stalker which is, you know, your kind of classic following someone home um, from a pub, you know, stalking someone um, in real life with that, usually in order to gain kind of sexual gratification, essentially. Um, And those are kind of the five stalking types that from an academic point of view, uh, we tend to use across the industry to describe the risk in each of those different types of stalker types. So the predatory stalker is the much highest risk out of those types. Uh, also the types of behaviours that those types of stalkers are likely to display. So in the context of divorce and separation, uh, where the stalker is a narcissist, which types are applicable there, do you think? Yeah, usually in this scenario, the most common would be the rejected stalker. And that tends to be the one where, you know, the relationship is broken down. They're trying to get re- reconciliation or revenge or the resentful stalker who, you know, realizes that the relationship is gone and then, you know, is carrying out that stalking as part of revenge. But 99% of these cases would be rejected stalker type. Usually in that rejected stalking category, they are trying to convince that individual to come back or they're trying to make it really clear that they're going to make it hard for them to escape or they want that revenge because of that rejection 
and they want to make themselves look like a victim and they also want to have a kind of significant impact on that other person's life. But in most of these stalking types, what the stalker is also really looking for is a connection to that individual. And that connection doesn't have to be positive. You know, blocking someone is an act that can be seen as a dialogue with a stalker, you know, changing relationship status, you know, changing phone numbers, all of these things are a, a action that gives the stalker some sort of feeling of there's cause and effect with this individual. It's really, really hard to kind of escape and manage. Stalking isn't about one thing. It's about this pattern of ongoing behaviour. And if you've had cases where someone has gone to the police station and the police officer on the front desk has just phoned up the stalker and said, you need to stop doing this or you're going to be in trouble. And then nothing has happened apart from the stalking has escalated because the stalker now feels they're running out of time or the stalker feels slightly emboldened because all the police officer's done is told them to stop. They haven't actually arrested them for a crime, which is stalking. You know, So a big part of the problem here is that because people get away with 100 instances of stalking before people report, and so few are investigated, that we wait until somebody gets harmed, somebody gets killed, until we charge somebody with something. But harassment is a crime, stalking is a crime, and people can go to prison for it. And what we really need is that focus to come in earlier and treat stalking and harassment as stalking and harassment, not something that is just a normal part of everyday life and that, you know, we shouldn't take law enforcement action with. With harassment, is there a number of times that someone can sort of harass you or come up to you or whatever before you can call it harassment? And is there a way of proving that that's that's easy? Yeah, so usually with harassment, there has to be a repeated nature to it. So, you know, if you look at the, so for stalking to be present, there has to be some form of harassment as the building block, which is really repeated attempts to impose unwanted communications and contact upon a victim. And so that is usually two to three times as a minimum. Um, and that those those behaviours have to cause alarm or distress or a fear of violence. And if you look at the kind of part of the differences between the two different stalking crimes, um, usually that is about, is there fear of violence? And has that fear of violence been there on at least two occasions? So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a really high volume of um, instances, but harassment behaviours have to be present, stalking behaviours have to be present, and the impact on the victim has to be present. And so, you know, if you think about things that are listed in terms of those impacts, you know, changing your route to work or patterns or employment, um, having other people pick up your kids from school, you know, putting in place additional security measures in your home, the impact on mental health, all these things are listed as known impact. So part of the problem is it's relatively complex. Are there harassment behaviours? Are there stalking behaviours? Is there an impact on the victim? Is there violence? If so, how many times? And that's how you kind of get to what is the crime that's actually being committed here. And part of the problem there is 
that makes it hard for police officers to spot and understand. It makes it difficult for individuals who don't know the law and about stalking to understand. So it's why stalking is a is like a bit immature still in terms of law enforcement compared to something like domestic abuse, which is slightly further ahead. What is true and what a lot of the kind of academic research has shown is that people will typically experience up to a hundred incidents of stalking behaviour before they come and seek help. And so quite often people are quite far down the line and that might be because they haven't recognised it as stalking or they haven't understood the behaviours. It may be that they're just putting up with it, they don't know what to do, but there's a range of reasons why they might put up with that for a long time. And what that means is that where it's cyber stalking or cyber enabled stalking, where there's a mix of online and offline stalking, that means that there's probably quite a bit of compromise and there's a lot of data about what the stalker has done so far. If you're wondering whether your partner really is a narcissist, please do check out my online course, Is My Partner a Narcissist? Knowing for sure. And if you want to understand narcissistic behaviours, you may be interested in my Demystifying the Narcissist online course. Both are available on drsapria.com. So what would your advice be? We've got a narcissistic individual. They're obsessed with their partner. They want contact because they want to sort of punish the person for leaving them. Um, They want to punish them, but they also want to get narcissistic supply fuel from them by those methods I mentioned of, you know, attention, drama, conflict, instilling fear into them. They've left the house. They've moved out, but um, perhaps they've made threats to to stalk them or perhaps they've said that they can look at them on their phone or, or whatever. You know, what would your advice be in that situation where someone one has no evidence that anything's going on but threats have been made what should they do so they should absolutely in that scenario go to the police and they should report those threats and those um, concerns around them being monitored on their device because it is a crime and the police can intervene at nine times out of ten victim will be much more successful with the police and getting traction if they have an advocate from a stalking charity on their side so in that scenario, before I did anything, even taking my devices, looking for compromise, you know, turning a phone off, battery resetting it, don't do anything. Go and get help from a stocking charity, from the police or someone like us who can walk through a process that ensures that individual is safe, that evidence is collected from those devices that may lead to that person being charged. And so those early actions are really important because one, it keeps you safe because if you do find something on your phone, you delete it, that may escalate the stalking and you may not have the help in place you need when that happens. Um, but two, there will be evidence online that can be taken and used in your kind of defense and as part of your um, kind of police investigation. So, you know, make sure you're safe, get the right help, and then work through those steps from the experts on what you should do about it. And I think it's really highlighting um, 
quite sharply just how important it is um, to to understand um, your um, sort of cyber footprint and and where you're connected remotely or otherwise and and who could connect to you through that and what you need to be careful of so I think there's two things there first of all I I think the days of saying it's the member of the public it's their responsibility to secure themselves online you know it's their responsibility to spot a phishing email or understand that there's malicious software on their device I think those days have gone you know it's not just emails from Nigeria princes offering you billions of pounds these are sophisticated attacks often that are hard to spot and so i think just technology companies the government i think the law i think how we regulate these things has to improve so that the user is secure out of the box you know you shouldn't have an account that you open online where the security stuff isn't turned on by default just so that you can watch videos faster you know these people need to be protected. But second of all, I, I do think that having an interest and understanding the technology that you do have and the basic things that can be done to secure those things, um, you know, I think the piece of advice I try and give people is if you open up a new account or you get a new device, even if you're just curious about what's in the settings in the security section and you have a look you're probably going to end up being more secure than someone who just never looks in there and and gets going. And it's also really tricky because, you know, we've got a team of of lots and lots of cybersecurity experts, but, you know, some people have used Apple devices all their lives and an Android device is confusing to them. You know, they they don't know how um, Alexa works or a ring doorbell or all these other things. And so you're never, ever going to be in a place where you understand all of the technology and how it works but by being curious and looking at security settings and turning those things on you've got a good chance that you've at least got basic security in place that will be enough to deter someone and if it's not enough to deter someone that having those security controls turned on like two-factor authentication like a good password like alerts if someone logs into your account more chance that you're going to have some evidence, information that then helps you understand that you are being stopped and some evidence that will help you prove it if you walk into a police station. And just the user experience for individuals. You know, I think that even when someone comes forward to report to the police, the user experience has to improve. You know, we shouldn't, the onus shouldn't be on the individual to understand what crime they've faced because people don't know, you know, People don't understand the technology, never mind the cybersecurity laws. And so the whole environment needs to evolve to reflect the types of crimes that we're seeing. Is there any way of improving that within the police? Are you involved with training or, or anything like that? Yeah, I so we are involved in various ways. And, and you know, some sometimes we're training um, police forces or you know, stalking points of contact in police forces to help them understand what we're seeing and, and what can be done about it. Um I think that the journey for the police and the government to go on around modernising the technology the police are using um, to having enough police officers who understand these areas is, is going to be a long one. Um, but I do think that even something as simple as the places where you go to report cybercrime and that just the way those services are designed, what happens to those cases once they're reported, 
um, those things need real improvement. And, you know, as an example, you can report a cybercrime to the police right now um, through a kind of reporting service, but you might not hear anything for a month. And for some people, they might never hear anything. And so a lot of these cybercrimes, it's not, you don't have a month. You don't really have 24 hours sometimes. You need quick intervention and help. And so that needs to change. And what also needs to change is if you walk into a police station, you need someone who understands roughly how these crimes work, what technologies might be involved, and who can have an educated conversation with that victim to make them feel better and to make them feel like they're being understood. So I think it's a really hard one because the police do a great job generally, but they're not resourced and funded and have the right skill set with cybercrime. And it can only get worse, can't it? I mean, cybercrime is just on the up, isn't it? As as technologies improve, it's just going to get more and more, um, you know, complicated. And, and we just need to really get on top of it, I think, because it, it, it can only get worse. It can. And also, if you look at th- even simple things like jurisdiction issues, if you're being stopped on Facebook, the police have to go to an American company and say, please give us data about someone who isn't even in our jurisdiction sometimes and we've got no legal jurisdiction to really even ask you and that can take a long time or it can never happen so even some of those big problems like international cooperation you know kind of jurisdiction issues we see that jurisdiction issue between police forces you know the victims in Kent but the stalkers in Sussex we are in an environment where there's still local policing but actually these crimes are not defined by a local authority border area you know or a area of england these are national international issues that need a national international thought process and how to respond gosh there's so much that needs to be done you know even when these cases are over and you know we found all of the compromise we've we've removed it a person's safe we've kind of dealt with the case along with the police and the stalking charities that's not the end for the victim because they still need to build up trust in technology again having a smartphone being on the wireless network any sort of social interaction online and so recovery from these things is doesn't end if that person gets arrested or the stalking stops there's always that suspicion of technology which just takes a long time to get over and i think it's one of the really under thought about things in cybercrime because we talk about you know millions of victims getting hacked we talk about the billions of pounds they lose but we don't talk about the mental health impact of these issues the physical health impact of these issues but also the impact on the people around those victims their kids their families their friends and the impact that stalkers can have on these individuals and so i think we just need to you know, we're not fit for purpose in terms of how we help stalking victims in the UK, even though we're relatively advanced. But we're certainly not advanced in terms of how we give those people the right mental health support to deal with these things and re-engage with technology in a positive way. Really interesting. So much that I think people don't properly know or understand a whole world out there that, as you rightly say, needs to be better regulated and and better understood all i can say is thank you so so much for joining us i mean that's just so interesting no problem at all i've really enjoyed the conversation my brand new book narcissists in divorce from love locked to leaving 
is out now. For more information and online courses about narcissism, please do check out my websites, thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com.